Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Today, I'll be speaking with Karen Lane, who, along with her daughter Mina, star in HGTV's long-running show, Good Bones. Good Bones is a show about a mother and daughter team who renovate and transform properties in the Indianapolis area near where they live. Karen is here to tell us stories about the people and experiences in her life that helped influence the person she is today. I'd now like to welcome Karen to our show. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you as well. Karen, I want to start off by asking you, where were you born and raised? And can you tell us about where your family originated from? I was born in Orlando, Florida, but a very young age, moved to Newtown, Connecticut, where I was raised and lived there until I went away to college. On my mom's side, her father emigrated from, we're not sure if it was Russia or Poland because the geographical boundaries were shifting at the time, but he emigrated, came through Ellis Island and moved to Richmond, Indiana, where he became a painting contractor. He was illiterate. And he made a very smart marriage to my maternal grandmother, born Carrie, but never liked being called Carrie, so has called herself Caroline her entire life. Uh, There's lots of Carries in the family, but she just took it upon herself. In the Bible, she's Carrie, but she calls herself Caroline. They had three children. The middle child was my mother, Maxine. My mother's mother's family proudly hails from England. We're not sure where. And there's some Adams family blood in there somewhere. Let me see. It is my great-grandfather's wife, who was Bertha Edith Adams. And I've tried to trace down how she's related to one of the presidents. And I just keep hitting dead ends, but I'm not going to give up. <laughs> keep at it, Karen. Keep at it. You'll find, at it. You'll find a president in there somewhere. <laughs> and then on my dad's side, it's all German. Uh, my dad's name is Ginn. And there's a little town in Germany called Ginheim, which is home of the Gins. He made a trip there once. His mother is Tally Leidy, which is very German, very German. They have those German propensities for order and predictability and tidiness. They like things clean. That's my family. And that's your family. Have you ever been to Germany to find out where these ancestors came from? I've been to Germany, but it how would I say it? Our itinerary was too structured to allow us to just go wandering looking for ancestors. Mm. But we're taking another trip to Germany, hopefully in the fall, and maybe I'll get a chance then. Oh, that would be really interesting to see that, I'm sure. Germans are wonderful. They're so friendly and so willing to speak English for people who don't speak German. And I've got Danke and Bitte. I think that's it. Herr and Damen. I've got those, but that's it. That's my German. But you've got them down cold. (laughs) (laughs) I have a un peu. I have a little bit more Francais, just un peu, and a little bit more Spanish than I have German. Well, you're far more cultured than I am as far as languages, that's for sure. (laughs) I just proved how cultured I am by snorting through my nose because you made me laugh and I snorted. (laughs) Super classy. (laughs) I love it. Can you tell us about your mom and dad? 
who they were, who they are? Yeah, my what? mom and dad met while my mom was in college because my dad had been dating my mother's roommate and that wasn't working out. So he started dating my mom and it worked out really well. Both very, very smart people. And my mother was a strong, independent, smart woman at a time in life where being a strong, independent, smart woman wouldn't really get you anywhere because you were supposed to get married and have kids. Mm. So, so she did. She got married and had kids. And once we were all gone, she started working again. But she was always, always busy. She sewed. She gardened. She belonged to the garden club. She started the junior garden club. She taught us how to sew. She taught us how to cook and iron and do all the housekeeping tasks. We learned how to make lye soap, everything. My dad was an engineer, an electrical engineer. And the story, which I have never verified, but I believe to be true, is that he invented the very first magnetic printer, which is the forerunner of all the printers we have today. He and another man started a business to manufacture this printer. And then his business partner died from cancer and dad just sold the whole thing. He didn't want any part of it anymore. Oh, no. uh, he really liked his girls to be intelligent and inquisitive. And because I have three sisters, I didn't ever realize that boys and girls are different mm -hmm. until I had kids of my own. And they, they do, they come out different, which was a shock to me because we just thought we were people and we could do anything we set our minds to. And that's what my parents fostered in us. So you don't have any no brothers? brothers? Nope, no brothers. We had some boy cousins, but we only saw them about once a year. Mm -hmm. And they were younger than we were, so they were very mm -hmm. easy for us to just push around. <laughs> that was pretty much it. We pushed them around. And our older cousins were girls. They didn't really push us around. They told us about things like French kissing and smoking cigarettes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I wouldn't have ever learned about French kissing if it weren't for my cousins. <laughs> <laughs> About your mom, can you elaborate a little bit more about your mom and what kind of hobbies did she have? What kind of interests? What are her passions in life? One, what's the word I want? Long lasting passion is flower arranging. She is a flower show judge. I don't know what, there's different levels. Whatever the level is, she's reached it. And she has judged flower shows for, geez, I don't know, 50 years. We grew up on seven acres of property and she gardened that entire seven acres. She, oh, you name it. We had it growing in our yard. If it could live in zone, agricultural zone five, mom planted it and grew it and everything grew beautifully for her, except gardenias. She would bring them in the wintertime because they don't grow in that agricultural zone. She put it out in the summertime and she just would cuss that gardenia because they just never lived. They never lived. She couldn't grow a gardenia. She decorated our house. One of my favorite things that she did is she got carpet samples. And this is way before DIY stuff. And she carpeted the downstairs hallway with carpet samples in this sort of rainbow pattern. You know, it started at yellow, went to orange, red. Am I doing that backwards? Yellow? I don't know. Blue, green, whatever the rainbow is. And each door was painted to match the carpet samples near it. So there was a purple door and there was a red door and there was a green door and a blue door. Two of my favorite memories with my mom was her sewing something for me. My parents weren't the kind of parents that kids were special. We were just supposed to grow up and get out of the house. That's what we're supposed to do. So when my mother would take the time to do something special for me, it was really special. And she made me this powder blue velvet midi skirt with a ruffle at the bottom and all French seams. And anybody who knows what French seams is knows that's twice as much work as a regular seam. 
just because I wanted to get dressed up to go to a party. And she made it in a day. And then my grandmother gave me a dress for Christmas and I cried when I got it. And my mother said, it's okay. Your grandmother doesn't know that you're becoming a young lady now because this dress hung on me like a potato sack. (laughs) So mom put it on me and she pinned it all in and she hemmed it and she darted it. Mm -hmm. And when she was done, I look like Jackie Kennedy Onassis in that dress. I'm not kidding you. She did such a beautiful job. So we wiped the tear stains off the dress and I wore it to a dance and I felt like Cinderella. Also, she taught me how to sew. And I had to have been maybe five. The way you sew is you put the fabric inside out and you sew the right sides together. And so she wasn't explaining to me how this works. She's just do what I tell you to do step by step. It's magic. You'll see. So I sewed this little doll dress by hand, you know, sewed the seams by hand. And then she said, now turn it inside out. (gasps) It is magic. Oh my goodness. It's a dress. Uh, Yeah. But she decorated our whole house. She picked all the furniture and then later ran for public office. I think it was selectman in our town. Mm -hmm. Her motto was maybe the best man for the job is a woman. So we screen printed the T-shirts for her. We had a little factory down in the basement. How terrific is that? Do you still have any of those T-shirts? No. And she might still somewhere have some of the buttons she made. But no, we don't have the t-shirts anymore. She lost the election. I think there were some hard feelings. I don't think she wanted to say things. And do you know who Peter Max is? I don't believe I do. He's an artist and he has a certain style of art. It's uh, a lot like tattoo art. It's got dark outlines and really bright colors. And we had a powder room in our house that my mom wallpapered the entire powder room in this Peter Max style bright magenta pink wallpaper. And it was an old bathroom. (laughs) She was ahead of her time on so many things. And that bathroom was so fun. It was so fun. You'd get happy every time you go in. So that's my mom. Oh, terrific. How about your dad? Dad was, uh, he worked every day from nine to five. And when he came home, what he wanted to do was read the newspaper. He didn't want to be bothered by children who were looking forward to seeing him which was typical of that generation. So he would do things to try and entertain us so that we would leave him alone. But it wasn't weird at all. He would tie us up and then we would have to get out of whatever knots he tied us in before he would pay attention to us. Now we give him 20 minutes to read the newspaper and I'm still really good at getting out of knots. I'm really, <laughs> really good. You're like a Houdini. And- Yeah, we thought it was fun. We just thought it was a game. I tell that story now and I think, oh, that sounds so abusive, but it wasn't. It was fun. Very, very, very smart man. He loved to vegetable garden. My mother was the flower gardener. He was the vegetable gardener. He wanted a dog and I'd been really, really sick. I was about seven years old. He said, if I got well, we could get a dog. And it wasn't because I wanted a dog. It's because he wanted a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And he really, we went to the local pound and he really wanted this beautiful German shepherd. He said, but this is going to be your dog. You're going to have to walk it. So they hand me the leash of this dog that's been in a kennel. I don't know how long. And it takes off through the field. And I don't have the sense God gave a seven-year-old to let go of the leash. So (laughs) the dog finally gets tired of dragging me around. (laughs) And I said, no. I want this cute little puppy. I want this puppy. (laughs) You don't want that dog. I can't walk it. So we got the puppy. It worked out okay. And he hunted. He taught me how to shoot a gun. 
He told me the most important thing about using a gun is you don't pull out a gun unless you intend to shoot it. So he wanted that, to make sure you were serious and understood yeah. what it meant to defend yourself in a very serious situation. Yeah. And this isn't, and he, he never coddled us. I mean, I was probably 10 at the time, but we grew up out in the middle of nowhere. He wanted you to take it seriously. This wasn't a yeah. toy. Yeah. He was a pretty serious man. Very serious now that I think about it. Hmm. What about his hobbies? So one of the things he liked to do was vegetable garden, but he had a workshop down in the basement. And I can't tell you now what sort of things he did there, except that I know for sure he had a silver plating setup. And I have discovered since he passed away in 1996, since he passed away, I discovered he was plating clockwork with gold using a method that's super toxic. It has to do with mercury vapor. And I'm trying to remember the name of the method, but he had this plexiglass hood with gloves that could go in and he could vent the air outside. And he had all the chemicals. After he passed, my mom found a gallon of liquid mercury that he was using for this process. She couldn't get anybody to take it because it's so toxic. Oh my goodness. You need a hazmat team to come get it. <laughs> So there were a lot of things that interested him. So he would try them using this method to make gold plate can have really serious consequences on your brain health, but it appears that he was very careful with his ventilation and it did not affect him. I mean, he could fix anything on a car, anything, any kind of motor, any kind of electronics, whatever you wanted, he could fix it. He's just so smart and oh, mushrooms. He loved going mushroom hunting. And I forget what you call, it's not a mycologist. That's one who studies mushrooms, but someone who has a hobby of learning about mushrooms, he would take us out in the fields and we'd say, what's this? And he'd say, oh, that's an Amanita muscaria. You can't eat those. And then, oh no, that that's good to eat. That's a morel. You bring me all the morels you want. And I remember finding this giant morel one year and being so proud of myself. And he was so pleased. And to this day, we go morel hunting and try and find giant morels because why wouldn't you? You know, Karen, I love mushrooms and my wife, Kelly, she can't stand them. She calls it fungus. It is fungus. She calls it fungus, but she'll make the mushrooms for me. And she'll say to me, James, your fungus is ready. <laughs> <laughs> but she makes them for you. That's she the important does. thing. does. It's so sweet. But what about artistic ability? Other than the silver plating or gold plating? He liked to do pencil sketches. And I searched high and low to see if there, in fact, I was at my mom's house this last weekend. And I was looking through all the drawers to see if there were any of his old pencil sketches. And I didn't find any. He also liked political commentary. So we have some old letters of his that he never sent. He just wrote them. And they could be pages long. And he was very creative in his insults. It was always very polite, cultured language, but not necessarily kind intentions. Oh, I got you. So let me ask you about your childhood. What are some of your favorite, not even favorite, but some of your most vivid childhood memories, both favorite and maybe not so favorite? There's one memory that sticks with me to this day and informs how I act towards other people. As I mentioned, my parents didn't think we were special because that's the way it was then. 
but there were some friends of my mother's who came over and for some reason they took a liking to me. And this was an older couple. They were childless. They'd never had children. And so let's say my parents are in their thirties at this point. These folks are in their sixties. They decided they wanted to take me home with them and they did. And I could still tell you exactly what I was wearing that day. That's how vivid the memory is. And I just hopped in the car with these two people who seemed to really like me and think I was worth taking home, which had never happened to me in my life before. And I went to their house and I got to know their little toy poodles. And I looked at their collection of little tiny toys. They had a whole curio cabinet full of little mechanical toys. And we walked around the yard and we chatted and they gave me a snack and something to drink. And then they took me home and my mom lit into them. Because apparently you're not supposed to just take people's kids away from their house. You're not supposed to put them in the car and say, hey, we're taking her with us, Maxine. We'll be back later. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's called kidnapping. (laughs) <laughs> but I was, I was willing to go. I was, I was like, yeah, I'll get in the car with you. This looks great. I'm going to go have some fun with some people who really seem to like me. And to this day, I think about the effect one person can have on another because that memory has stayed with me for, I don't know, 50 something years. So when I see kids struggling, I always try to treat them like they're special, try to recognize that they're in a difficult situation is there something I can do to help? Say something like, you seem like such a nice little girl, or you seem like such a smart little boy, or you seem like such a capable little, whatever, to give them that thing that I got. And maybe it'll make a difference and maybe it won't, but it can't hurt. It can't hurt to be nice to a kid who seems to be struggling. And usually if you talk to a kid who's struggling, they shut right up because they're terrified. And then their parents at least are grateful. Yeah. So your parents loved you, but they didn't treat you like you because you were a child. You were something special that everything should stop for and don't on or anything like that. No, my parents loved me to pieces. I was very, very ill when I was little. I was about a year and a half old and I got a meningitis or encephalitis. Depends which parent you ask at what time. I was a year and a half and five days in the hospital with a fever that should have probably killed me. I think it changed my mom. I think seeing a child almost die really, really changed her and my dad. We were very precious to them, that we were alive and that we were healthy and that we were intelligent, that we were capable people. That's what you hoped for as a parent. You didn't hope that your kids would just sit at your feet going, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me the best? That's not what you wanted. You wanted your children to be resilient, curious, and intelligent. And they're proud of all of us. And they've always been proud of us. And so they showed their love a different way than some parents show their love today. But that couple at that time made you feel like you were extremely special and important. Yep, they sure did. It didn't carry over to the rest of my life. It wasn't like I started strutting around like I'm special and important. But somehow I internalized the idea that I am special and important. We all are. You know, we all are. And I, at a young age, I got that and it carried me through a lot of difficult times. Yeah. Let's talk more about your childhood memories. You talked about your dad being someone who could fix anything that went wrong with a car. So (laughs) did that mean that he would keep old cars alive? What do you remember about some of your earliest family cars? So my father's favorite kind of car was a Peugeot. And we always had one or two Peugeots because one for my mom and one for my dad, because they mom had to drive the kids around and dad had to get back and forth to work. 
he had a standard transmission H on the column. And I learned to drive a standard transmission with the H on the column one day because somehow both of my parents were not at home and they had forgotten to pick up my little sister from school and I was 15. And the school said, you have to come get her. I was like, okay. So I got in the car and I had the basics. I had ridden with my dad enough that I understood what the clutch did and what the brake did and what the gas did and what the shifter did on the column. But actually doing it's a little trickier. But I made <laughs> it, I picked her up and I got her home and I didn't destroy the gearbox and it worked out okay. And that was the first car I drove was that Peugeot. That was handed down from my older sister to me. Dad got his new Peugeot, new. He never bought a new car. He always bought an old used Peugeot. My mom's was light blue and it had so many rust spots on it. She bought these day glow daisy appliques that were between six to 12 inches in diameter. And she covered the rust spots with these appliques. And you could always find that car in the parking lot. Always. What a great idea that is. She was a hippie and she didn't even know it. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, if your dad had bought a new car, he wouldn't be able to work on it. He had to have a car that was ready to be worked on. And also, you know, the second you drive the car off the lot, it depreciates. And my parents were both very careful with how they spent money. They spent money on things that mattered, like buying books for their children's education. And they didn't spend things on money on things that didn't matter, like buying a new car. That didn't matter. We don't do that. So in these Peugeots, did you go on vacations, holidays together? Almost every summer, my mom would take a trip back to Richmond, Indiana, where her family was. Sometimes it was in the Peugeot. And at some point we had a Chrysler, which I think it had something to do with my dad's work. Somehow he got this big tail fin blue Chrysler. I think we took that one time. And then at some point there was some kind of station wagon, but almost always a Peugeot. Did the Chrysler seat like 35 people and it was two city blocks long? Yeah, it was a boat. And just the back window where you had that space and I could crawl up there and lay down and take a nap. It was so huge. It was crazy. My parents loved Cape Cod. We took a couple trips out to Cape Cod with family friends. My dad loved to hike. He would take us hiking and explain the things that you see on a trail, like the blazes on the tree and how you can tell which direction you're going and what you do if you get lost. You go downhill. Because if you go downhill long enough, you will hit water. And when you hit the water, you follow the water. And if you follow the water long enough, you will come to bigger water and you will come to civilization. Because the moss on the north side of the tree is not as helpful as you'd think. And if you're lost, what good does it do to know which way north is? What you're looking for is civilization. Exactly. What about the holiday times? Christmas, Easter? Did you get together with family? Did you go places? Did you just stay at home? What happened? So Easter was always a time for an Easter egg hunt and Easter baskets. And our Easter baskets always had little potted bulbs of some kind, hyacinths, uh, daffodils, or what, you know, snowdrops, something, always had flowers, always a chocolate Easter bunny. And then Christmas, I inherited this from my mother. There was only one way to put lights on a Christmas tree. And so that was a Christmas ritual. My poor father putting the lights on the tree, according to my mother's instructions. My husband is much wiser than that. He doesn't go near the tree until I put the lights on. He's like, no, I'm no part of this. I'm out. I don't do lights. 
uh, it was always a live tree and it was always a family outing to go get the tree. And we would take the hatchet and the sled or the axe and the sled and chop the tree down, pull it on the sled to the car, tie it to the top of the car, bring it inside the house, put it in the tree stand. And by the time Christmas was over, the needle fall was really epic. I mean, just epic. <laughs> Fantastic. And one year in junior garden club, we made Christmas tree decorations, which nobody could do now because there'd be so many waivers people would have to sign. But we cut the tops and bottoms off of tin cans. And then we used tin snips to snip into that round piece. And then we'd t twist the pieces we'd cut or we'd poke holes in it with a nail so that you could make sort of look snowflake looking things. And then you just put a little Christmas tree hook on it and you hang it on the tree and you be real careful when you reach into the tree for something that you don't cut yourself on that tin top. Oh, I envisioned severed arteries and things like yeah. that. We, you know what? None of us got hurt because we all respected the danger. We weren't stupid kids. We're like, no, that's sharp. Watch out for that. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, parents kind of thought, well, if you cut yourself on something sharp, that's your fault. As a kid, you were being stupid. Don't mm. cut yourself on sharp things. Now we try to keep the sharp things away from kids. And I think maybe they just need to learn. I'll give you a story. When my first child started crawling and was looking at the stairs, was thinking about going down the stairs, we had a loft. And I don't know why I came up with this, but I took some Legos and he crawled over to the edge of the loft and I dropped the Legos off the side of the loft and they smashed into little pieces. You know, the tower just became 20 little pieces. And I said, see that? That's ouch. And if you go down those stairs, that's ouch. Never had a lick of trouble. <laughs> I just didn't have any trouble. And when they got to the point where they could get near the stove, I let them feel how hot it was. You just get close. You don't let them burn themselves. You're like, that's ouch. Don't go near the stove. And they catch on really fast. It's something between a theory and a smashed finger or a broken leg. Yes. A little closer <laughs> to the smashed finger and broken leg, and it gets the message across, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you have to teach kids about the dangers in the world and how to protect themselves. You can't be with them at all times and protect them from all dangers. It's just impossible. You're right on that. Now, your dad was very handy. He was an engineer. Besides cars, could he build and fix other things? Could he do home repairs or things? Oh, yeah. He could build literally anything. And he had all the tools in the world. My parents bought half of an estate in rural Connecticut that had gone through a bankruptcy and it never got finished. So they bought this house that wasn't finished. On the property, there was a mink farm, a horse stable, servants' quarters. What else am I missing? And then the other half that had originally been part of the estate had a supper club, restaurant, nightclub, a carriage house, and like a storage shed. This house was made out of granite fieldstone from the Connecticut countryside, and it was gorgeous. But when my parents moved in, the plaster, the first layer of plaster had been put on, and that's called the hair coat. That layer of plaster squeezes in between the lath and the hair makes it very, very textured because mm. they actually used horse hair in it so that it sticks to the lath. And then the next thing you do is put on the final coat or the finished coat of plaster, which is very smooth and beautiful. My mother loved that hair coat. 
So they never finished the plaster. So we had these beautifully textured walls growing up. They refinished all the wood floors in the house. My dad turned the old mink farm into his workshop when his downstairs workshop got too small. And it was the size of about a four car garage. That was my first paying job. He paid my sister and I to do the demolition. We got rid of everything that was in there, cleaned the whole thing out, and then he built a workshop. He ran power out there. He ran water out there. He insulated it. He drywalled it. And he, oh, geez, I don't even know what he had out there. We weren't supposed to go out there. I mean, we'd sneak in every now and then, but I still have his old chemistry set. I have all these round bottom beakers and glass cylinders, and I don't even know what all I have. Really? How did he learn how to do all this stuff? Probably school. You know, he was an engineer. In college, he took engineering classes. And building is just really common sense and physics. You know, you have to know how much weight, how much of a load something has to carry. And then you build it to carry that load. All materials have a load that they can carry. So many pounds per square inch of material. So if you use wood, that carries less of a load than steel. And steel and aluminum carry different loads per the weight of the item. So steel is heavier, aluminum's lighter, but you can get comparable load carrying capacities because of the strength of aluminum. I might be talking out my butt on this one because my dad was way smarter than I was. And he would have told me, no, you're wrong about the aluminum, Karen. You could tell <laughs> me You could tell me anything. I'll believe it. Believe, <laughs> believe me, Karen. You mentioned about his chemistry set. Did you ever do any experiments? Did he ever show you how to do any of his experiments or anything like that? There are two experiments that I remember so clearly. And I, I was young. I mean, somewhere between five and seven. And the first one was he took two glasses of water. One just was plain water and he had two eggs and he put the egg in each one. And then he put salt in one of them. And then the egg floated higher in the water. And he said, why? Well, the salt must have done something. Yes. What do you think the salt did? I don't know. Made the egg lighter. Well, how would the salt make the egg lighter? I don't know. Maybe made the water heavier. Now that's a good idea. Maybe it made the water heavier. Oh, the other one he did was a glass also. Apparently he liked using glasses. Had a candle on the table. He lit it with a match, put the glass over the candle and it went out. And he said, what happened? Oh, it was something that the glass kept out that the candle needed to burn. That was a hard one. That one took me a long time to figure out because the glass is clear and air is clear. You can't see air. So you don't realize, oh, the candle needs the air to burn. I know that now. So he spent the time with you. And I know you said that you did some demolition and you got paid for it. Did he actually instruct you on how to do some carpentry or things? Or did you just watch him? No, uh, he didn't <laughs> tell us how to do the demo or tell us how to do carpentry. I would just watch him. I must have learned something because a new house got built right adjacent to our property. And I found some scrap lumber and I thought, I need to make these people a chair. I need to make them a gift. I want our new neighbors to feel welcome in the neighborhood. I'm like, this is just a little happy kid. Just like, I'm going to build a chair out of these old two by fours. And I found some nails on the ground, but there were no hammers. So I used a stone, which does not work that well, but I managed to cobble this chair together. But the pieces of lumber I found weren't exactly right. And you can't really hold together a chair with just nails. 
It doesn't work. You maybe need some pocket screws. Maybe you need some L brackets. You know, you need more than nails. I never gave them the chair. It was a failed project, but that must have come from watching my dad. I mean, it must have. You know what? Once he took one of our old Peugeots that was a wreck and he turned it into a trailer. What? He used his acetylene torch to cut the top of the car off. So now you just have the body of the car. And then he took the front of the car and took some of those pieces and welded it. And now he had a, whatever you call a chassis. Is that the part under the car? I'm not a car genius. And it still had had its wiring and its taillights. So he made a little trailer and he, yeah. And we rode it in a parade. Yeah. And he would use it to haul stuff to the dump. Yeah. And you said your dad passed in 1996. Nineteen, yes, nineteen ninety six. He was fairly young, I would imagine. He was. He had stomach cancer that oh. did not get diagnosed until it was really too late to do anything about it. And he only lived about six months after his diagnosis, and then passed. Oh. And your mom is still living, right, Karen? Yeah, mom is still kicking. She's a, she's <laughs> she had a fall and had to go to the hospital, and now she's in rehab, and she's giving those poor girls in rehab a run for their money. They want her to stay in bed, and she just keeps getting out of bed and sitting on the floor. Oh, God bless her. God bless her. (laughs) She's not hurting anybody. She's not hurting herself. She's like, I'm not going to follow your rules. I'm going to sit on the floor if I want to. And I think I might have inherited that oppositional brain from her. You might have. You might have. So you grew up in this environment where your mom was very active with gardening, and she ran for office, and your dad was very handy, and he was always doing something. You went off to school to study law. Well, that's not how it started. How did it start? I started with a dream of becoming a marine biologist because of all my time on Cape Cod and on Long Island Sound. I had this vision of being out on the ocean and it would be wonderful. So I went to Southampton College, which had a marine biology degree and was only about four hours from home. It was a quick trip across the sound, but you had to go all the way around. And so that's why it took four hours. And then I discovered that I get very, very, very motion sick, very motion sick. I can't be on a boat without throwing up. And I discovered that because I had a friend in college who had a 42 foot sailboat he inherited from his grandfather. And we would go out sailing and I would have the best time until we hit open water and then I'd puke. (laughs) What a wonderful experience. (laughs) I love sailing. Absolutely love sailing. I love the ocean but it does not love me. And I've kept trying and my husband will buy a big sailboat when we can figure out how I can actually be helpful to him when we're out on open water. Cause right now I'm totally disabled. I can't do anything. I'm flat on the ground and that's no good. You need a helper on a boat. You need a captain's mate. Yes. You need a mate. <laughs> so since seasickness thwarted your hope for a career as a marine biologist, what did you do next? I started out at Southampton College. I did an internship at Plum Island Animal Disease Laboratory, which had a fiction book written about it, but it's where they study swine flu and lots of other animal diseases. So you have to take a little ferry out, prevailing currents carry all the viruses away. So you have to shower in and out. You can't bring any personal items in. Then I moved to Columbus, Ohio and started going to Ohio State because I met a boy and I thought he loved me. And I got to Ohio State and he broke up with me. <laughs> <laughs> and there and that, you were. <laughs> that didn't work very well. But I did three years of nursing school and then met a boy who married me 
and we moved to Indianapolis together. And once in Indianapolis, I discovered something I had not discovered in nursing school because we hadn't done any work with blood. All of our cadavers were all fixed in formalin. Uh, I'm working in my husband's office and he squirts a bunch of blood out of someone's knee and I pass out. Uh, Maybe nursing's not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Seems a shame to be learning it at this point in life. So went to business school and graduated with a bachelor's of science in business administration. And then we get to law school. One of my schoolmates in my business class said, hey, you want to take the LSAT with me? And I love taking tests. I love it. So I said, yes, I'll take the LSAT with you. And I did really well. And I got into law school. And there you go. Terrific. What kind of law did you practice? I started out in a firm that did lots of different things, but I quickly went to the prosecutor's office in Marion County and became a deputy prosecutor. And after working there for 10 years, I had vested my pension and went into private practice doing criminal defense work, family law, and this little niche work for people whose cars were getting fixed badly or for too much money. It was just this little niche practice I had. I loved helping people with their cars. I think that's a holdover from my dad. I was just going to say that. (laughs) Well, he also always told me growing up I should be a lawyer because I could argue about anything, and he's not (laughs) wrong. And then after a couple of years, I went back to the prosecutor's office for a few years and then went back in private practice for a few years. So how did you go from law to doing repairs and things like that with your daughter, Mina? How did that actually, how did that happen that enabled you to be discovered by HDTV? Well, I was exposed to work on houses from an early age, you know, watching my parents fix things up. The first house I rented on Long Island, I had to replaster the walls and replastering is not easy. And I'm really good at it. And I'm not bragging. I'm not bragging. It's just true. My mom's dad was a painting contractor. So we grew up learning to paint and I can do a ceiling line like nobody's business. And that's because my mom was really serious about it. You do this right or you get out. In any case, so I had some experience Mina wanted to do something grown up. So she bought a house. She didn't want to get a grown up job. She bought a house and it was a hot house that she paid $37,000 for. And she got some kind of loan. I don't remember the name of it. And we redid the whole house and we did, I would say the bulk of it ourselves. So we had never installed kitchen cabinets before. And this is a hundred and something year old house and the floors are not level at all. And your cabinets have to be level so that your countertop is level. So we worked, it took us three days to install the cabinets, partly because I was the cabinet jack. So if we put a cabinet on the wall, I just hold it on my shoulders and hold it there while she screws it in. There's an easier way to do it. You put a ledger board up there and it's way easier. In any case, the countertop guys come in to put in the countertop and they said, who installed your cabinets? And we thought they were going to be upset. And we said, we did. He goes, we've never seen cabinets installed with this precision. And we were so proud of ourselves. Mina put up the bathroom tile and it looked amazing. It was perfect. Her grout lines were mathematical, but she'd made a mistake. She didn't pay attention to what she was buying. It was all the same color, but some of it was matte and some of it was glossy. So there's this kind of mixture of matte and glossy tiles on the wall. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. We learned how to install flooring. We learned how to install drywall. We learned how to use a compressor to apply primer and paint to a wall. 
uh, how to install windows and doors. We didn't run the HVAC, the electrical or the plumbing. We didn't do that. Uh, in the house I live in now, I ran the electrical, but I didn't land the electrical because that's a, a skill set I don't have. I can drill holes in a two by four and I can run a wire through it. That's not hard. Knowing what to hook the wire to when you get to the box, that's a little trickier. So Karen, you and your daughter Mina did all this home repair, this incredible job that you did. How did that experience or that work that you did turn into what is now six season stint, shall we say, on Good Bones on HGTV? After we did the first house, we found we had a skill set that we were good at it and that we liked it. So we bought another house and we did it. And we bought another house and we did it. And after the second or third house, Mina said, I think we have a business. We put all of this stuff we were doing on a little Facebook page. Mina came up with the name Two Chicks and a Hammer. And that's how High Noon Productions found our Facebook page. Because we've been putting what we were doing, just as these two chicks with a hammer, on our Facebook page. And so Tina found the Facebook page and the rest is history. I think the Facebook page is much better now. Oh. <laughs> Karen, let's talk about Good Bones. During the six seasons so far that you've been on that show, you and Mina, what is the most interesting find that you have had while renovating a home? There are two that compete. One is an autograph, which is an original piece of sheet music handwritten by the author of the music, signed by the author. Albert von Tilzer wrote, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And Austin found an autograph signed by Albert Von Tilzer in a wall of a house we were rehabbing. How cool is that? Amazing. And it's in museum glass on acid-free paper hanging on my wall. The other thing that is interesting in a completely different way is there's this thing called concealed shoes. And one of the houses we worked on season, season six, the workers found a concealed shoe. And they removed it. And then everybody proceeded to get injured. And a concealed shoe is a charm or a talisman that is supposed to protect a house from evil. So all the workers wanted the shoe put back in as quickly as possible. So if you believe in the power of the shoe, putting it back in will keep you safe. They all believed in it. And so we put the shoe back in and they were all fine after that. And it was a child's shoe. I don't know, maybe six inches long and been repaired many times so my guess is it had been worn by more than one child. And it was all leather, little lace-up boot-style shoe. And how old do you think the shoe was? 1900s would be my guess. Texture of the leather, how old and dry it was, and had been concealed. That's not a current trend, concealing shoes in houses. Although some people are trying to bring it back. <laughs> I don't think they want one of my smelly sneakers in the wall of my house. Well, the idea behind using the shoe is it is the one item of clothing that completely conforms to the human figure so that the spirits will think, oh, this is a human and they'll go in the shoe and then they can't come out. I don't know what the magic is that keeps them from coming out. I have no idea, but that's the idea behind it. Oh, okay. That's, that's the legend or the lore yeah. behind it. huh? Okay. Can you think of the most historic home that you've been in? Like the oldest <sighs> that you've oldest. renovated, I should say? There was a little brick schoolhouse. I think it's probably the oldest one we've done. I think that was a season three house. 
and I can't sh- for sure date it, but most of our houses are someplace around 1890 or newer. And so the house I live in is, I think, around that same age, around 1890. In fact, we found a concealed shoe in my house too, and I'd completely forgotten about it. And we still have it upstairs in this little keepsake box. In any case, but this schoolhouse appeared to be older than that. And I'm trying to remember what information I was given that made me think it was older. It was just a fascinating structure. Anything brick. I love brick. Absolutely love brick. And you could see, I found a piece of metal when we were doing this house. And that's what helped date it. Because it's one of the things that holds the wooden trusses that go across the ceiling. This piece of metal is what they used then. The other interesting thing we found, and I researched forever on this, a pair of carriage lamps, the old school kind that when automobiles first came into use, they used carriage lamps from horse-drawn carriages, and they make a little ring on the automobile, and they put the carriage lamp, and it was run with some kind of fuel oil, usually kerosene. And I found a pair of carriage lamps in a house, and they were advertised in 1896. Took me forever to find that advertisement. And they're very unique. So I'm very confident that these are the carriage lamps in that ad. I love that. I love that. So Two Chicks and a Hammer and the show Good Bones, the primary mission is to do rejuvenation, right? We are rehabilitating neighborhoods one house at a time. I love that. So besides the show, what are you doing now? What other interests do you have? What are you up to, Karen? So I started a 501c3 called Indie Home, whose goal is to provide permanent supportive housing for Indianapolis's homeless community. My husband and I bought a shop for me because I've taken over the garage and I have a shipping container that's 40 feet long, full of stuff. All of my tools and projects needed a home. So we bought a building and I will start selling things out of that building and I'm getting my master's in divinity. So I'm taking Greek this semester. Wow. that. (laughs) That's no small endeavor, is it? No, Greek is hard. What's nice though is because of chemistry and physics and a few other things, like I already know lambda, I know delta, I know pi, I know rho, I know sigma, I know epsilon. There's some that I already know. So I just need to fill in the blanks with some flashcards. They're not just sororities and fraternities, right? No, they are not. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have other hobbies? I have a million hobbies. I'm a collector. I made a list one day of all the things I collect. Uh, My most obvious collection is glass spheres. I love glass spheres. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I collect dried plant material and um, doorknobs, the old knob and tube ceramic insulating pieces. And (laughs) you don't want to get me started on my collection. (laughs) Paper, metal, crystals, fabric. I mean, I collect all kinds of things because what happens is when you have enough, you can create something. So if you just have one crystal, what are you going to do? But if you have a bowl full of crystals, you can make a lamp. That's true. You don't have a big bottle of mercury sitting around, do you? (laughs) No. (laughs) I wish I did. Um, And if you just have one dried flower, you can't do anything with it. But if you have a box full of dried flowers, You can make a Christmas tree, you can make a front door wreath, you can make a centerpiece, you can do all kinds of things. So when do you suppose you will have completed your Master of Divinity? I'm guessing two years. Two years. 
that's my best guess. It may take a little longer than that. I'm only taking Greek this semester because I wanted to give it my full attention. But you were asking about my hobbies. I make all kinds of things. I sew, I read, uh, I travel. We love to hike in the mountains with backpacks on. We like to camp, all kinds of things. Got plenty of things to keep me busy. Do you ever sleep or eat or anything like that? (laughs) I do eat one meal a day now because that's all I need to eat, which is sad because food's delicious. But if I eat more than one meal a day, I'll just turn into a blimp. (laughs) I do sleep. I go to bed early and I get up early and I get more done before 9am than most people get done all day because it's quiet. No one bothers me. Mm. Well, I want to ask you, Karen, as we wind up this wonderful interview, if you could tell me how your family and your early years and experiences impacted the person you are today. So from my dad's side, that Germanic history I need things organized. I need things predictable. I need a plan. And the way my dad was, he was very much that way. You get the tools together that you need. You think it through. And also, though, he was very creative. He was a creative thinker. He was artistic. He could write beautifully. And I think those things impacted me, too. But most importantly, he taught me how to use my brain He said, a person with a brain is never bored. To this day, if I'm in a line and somebody says they're bored, I think to myself, well, you don't have a brain. (laughs) (laughs) Do things in this line. I got things happening up here. I am never bored. And from my mom, I had this love of landscape gardening, of fashion and home design, and just this, this sense of creating out of nothing. I mean, she could take a piece of fabric and she could make a ball gown. And that's amazing to me that that's possible. And with what we do now, that's what we do. We take a house that's full of cockroaches and termites and mold and dead animals and feces, and we turn it into a home. And along the way, if I get lucky, I find things that are worth saving that have history and meaning, like Albert von Tilzer's letter, or those carriage lamps, or I've saved wing walls from houses where they're not going to go back in. So I have these giant columns with these wing walls. What am I going to do with those? I don't know, but we can't throw them away. They're history. There's somebody's story. There's energy stored in those things from the Christmases that were held in those houses. And that all comes back when you respect that history. And when you reinvigorate that history, you let the house tell a new story with a new family. And I like to say my law practice was the same as my house practice because I met people on their worst day. This is your worst day. You're in court for something. You're a victim of a crime. You've been charged with the crime. The person you thought you're going to live the rest of your life with is leaving you. This is your worst day. And here I am. Okay, house, this is your worst day. Actually, it might get a little worse before it gets better. Are you ready for that house? And then you're there for the process of the rebirth and the reinvigoration and the rehabilitation that brings us to a new place. And if you're getting divorced, you're going to process through that and you're going to realize he didn't want to be with me or she didn't want to be with me. We shouldn't be together. Let's start our lives separately and be happy that we figured it out so we can each move on happily. Or if you're the victim of a crime, I'm there for you. I'm going to make this safe for you and comfortable for you and secure for you. And I'm going to support you. If you've been charged with a crime, I'm going to protect your rights. I'm going to make sure that you are treated fairly. You have someone on your team. 
And with the house, I'm here to make sure that your history is respected and that whoever moves into you next understands the process you've undergone to become what you are. Oh, I love it. Now, get me off my soapbox. No, I love that soapbox. As you may know, I am a big history buff. I've been a history buff as long as I can remember, as long as I can remember. And I remember going to what we call Washington's headquarters. It's the Ford Mansion in Morristown, New Jersey. And I think I was maybe about six years old. And I remember walking into that house, stepping on those floorboards and the smell and everything like that. I just remember feeling the history in the house. Yes. I am so thankful for the people who preserved that and kept it from falling to termites or the demolition mm -hmm. ball or what have you for future generations, or in your case, future families who will move into those houses and make that neighborhood more rejuvenated and a nice yeah. place to live. So I'm really thankful. I'm sure a lot of people are thankful, not just because your show is a lot of fun and it's enjoyable, <laughs> but it also it does amazing things. I have one more question. I'm going to sneak in here. What would you want or what do you want your legacy to be? I would like my legacy to be that I left the world a better place than I found it. Maybe just in small ways, but that I never missed a chance to be kind or helpful or make something better. That's what I would like. Thank you, Karen. You are kind and helpful and are definitely making a difference in your family, your community and beyond. Before we finish up, can you tell us where people can find and watch your show, Good Bones? Well, you can stream it on Discovery Plus if you want to do that. It's uh, five something a month and you can just stream all the Discovery shows or you can go to your cable station and watch HGTV. We don't have any new episodes right now. Season six is going to air summer 2021, but you can check HGTV's website and see when they're going to be playing reruns because they play them all the time. Or if you want, you can buy all the seasons on either iTunes or Amazon. Do you know every time my wife Kelly watches your show, all of a sudden she's coming up with new ideas. And, <laughs> and I, I start getting all jittery and nervous and sweaty because I know it's going to cost me money because I'm not able to do <laughs> what you and me are able to do. No, James, you can do anything I can do. I promise. I am the stupidest person in the gene pool. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. Anybody. Well, I don't know. <laughs> they don't show you this on TV, but I make a lot of mistakes and a lot of my projects don't come out well at all. And they have to get redone and redone and redone. But on TV, you just see, oh, I did this in magic. Here's the end product. <laughs> Not how it works. <laughs> and Karen, how can people find out more about your nonprofit? They can't right now because my website's not published yet. I've been a little busy and I need to get back to that. But it's Indie Home Inc. And there will be a website popping up soon. It's all made. I just had to do some banking stuff in the background so that if people wanted to donate, they could. And I need to put that all in and then publish it. Well, our listeners will be on the lookout for that, I'm sure, because I think that's a, a really wonderful nonprofit to set up to help people. Karen, I want to thank you again for coming on Your History, Your Story. You've got an amazing life. And <laughs> it same, sounds like you came from an amazing gene pool, too. And I did. I did. You had such and I a, passed on those genes to all of my kids. My kids are way smarter than I am. Oh, that's terrific. You know, I think you've had so many experiences, and you just laid it out so well in a storytelling way, which is what this podcast is all about. You're able to talk about and reflect upon 
your ancestors, your parents, how you picked up different traits, different gifts from your parents, and how you learned. And I think, you know, you're a very active person and you do a lot of great stuff. So on behalf of myself, my wife, Kelly, and your History, Your Story podcast, I want to wish you the very, very best for the future in all your endeavors. Thank you very much, James. And thanks for letting me do this. You are an absolute delight. And so is your wife. Oh, thank you very much. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.